This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. I'm particularly excited for this week's episode, a conversation about, well, how we have conversations. Listeners of this podcast, students who have taken my class, and, well, really anyone who's heard me talk about ethics and technology in public has heard me talk about the importance of civil discourse. In an age of Twitter feuds, Facebook shouting matches, and an online culture of escalating arguments, learning the skills of talking to one another is more important and less understood than ever. That is why this week I invited the founder of the Open Dialogue Movement, Zahabia Nuruddin, to join me this week to talk about how, in a time when we interact with one another increasingly online, through our tech rather than face-to-face, we can practice the ethics of civil discourse. Zahabia Nuruddin is the founder of Open Dialogue, a nonprofit aimed at empowering students and members of the public to actively listen and understand different perspectives. Throughout her time at UC San Diego, she volunteered at a restraining order clinic, hosted a benefit dinner for victims of domestic violence, participated in student government as president of Warren College, and led her community as a resident assistant and orientation leader. She graduated from UCSD in 2020 and is currently a sales development representative in the tech industry at Okta. Zahabi is passionate about discovering new towns, long hikes to waterfalls, deep conversations with strangers, and strong cups of coffee. And today I am joined by a co-host, our head of research for the Technical Human Team, Sakina Nuruddin. Sakina Nuruddin is a fourth-year English student at Cal Poly. She is graduating in the winter of 2022 and plans to pursue a path in technical sales upon graduating in the tech industry. Sakina is working to bring a chapter of Open Dialogue here to Cal Poly and would be thrilled to connect with anyone interested in this initiative. You can find more information about Open Dialogue, including a link to the organization and contact information for Sakina in the show notes. Hi, Sakina. Hi, Zahavia. Hi there. How are you doing? Hello. It's so good to have you on this show. I've been excited for this for quite some time. This is a show that gets to the core, I think, of the values that I hold very dear in the context of ethics and technology. So I'm especially delighted to host you and to have this conversation. So Javi, I wanted to start off by asking you a kind of first question to kind of give us a lay of the land here. I think listeners who have taken my course or who regularly listen to the show might be familiar with the terms Socratic seminar and civil discourse. But for listeners who might not be as familiar, what is civil discourse? Yeah, definitely. So civil discourse is really the idea of people coming together and sharing their different perspectives, really telling their own truth and trying to understand where other people are coming from. I often say that it's so key to listen to understand instead of waiting to speak, which is really the default. You know, we're always trying to put our own perspective and a response to someone else's question. But civil discourse really challenges that and really implores you to sit and understand someone else's viewpoint. How did you train your mind to do that, to start listening to what other people have to say rather than anticipating what you might say in response? Well, it's our natural tendency, like even in my family with my sister who's on this call, you know, with friends, roommates, 
I'm always trying to one up someone or trying to have a response to fill that awkward silence because I'm worried that I'm going to forget my own train of thought. But in college, I had a professor, Professor Karen Dobkins, and she really challenged this for me because instead of people talking over each other, if you sit and kind of understand the other person, even if you think that they're wrong, that really gives you this beautiful opportunity to view them as a human, you know, someone who has thoughts, perspectives, ideas. And once you do that, you might even realize that there could be flaws in your own thinking. But if you're always trying to think of a response, then you're always in the right and you're never in the wrong. I really like what you're saying here. I mean, part of it too is I think if you really want to be able to respond productively to what somebody else is really saying, you have to understand what they're really saying. You can't argue against some phantom argument of what you think they might be saying. It's really important to understand what they are actually saying to be able to ingest that and say, I think I understand what you're saying. Let me respond to that. I'm curious because I think one of the applications of what you're saying here is in terms of a third term that I care deeply about, which is restorative justice. How do we put the ideals of Socratic seminars and civil discourse in conversation with that term, restorative justice. One of your talks, I heard you define that term as, and I'm going to quote you here, a victim-centered response to crime and active involvement of all the parties, the victim, the offender, the community, all coming together as a unit to really address the harm that has been caused and how we can move forward from this. That's the quote. How does restorative justice allow us to ameliorate the elements of civil discourse? And in what ways does it complicate it? I think it's extremely key in civil discourse to implement elements of restorative justice, because with restorative justice, you no longer see that person as evil or as a bad person, you know, instead, you see them as a human being that maybe needs to respond to something that happened in society, you know, if they said certain words that hurt someone, or they drew certain symbols, or they wronged society or an individual in some way. It's more of seeing them as part of that society rather than an outsider that needs to be punished. So when you implement that idea in civil discourse, you're basically saying that we are all people sitting in a circle. We are going to try to understand where you're coming from, even if it might be wrong in some people's ideas or perspectives or their past beliefs. We are trying to come to a way to address this as a group and a society. So with these discussions, it's key because if someone says something alarming or personally offends someone, then that person also has the opportunity to speak up and say how that statement or that viewpoint personally makes them feel. So really, restorative justice is just a tool to humanize each other and to have that face-to-face conversation of different perspectives and why you reach to that conclusion. I want to dig into this a little bit deeper. In 2016, you founded Open Dialogue at your alma mater, which is UC San Diego. What is Open Dialogue? And was there a particular case or a particular incident that led you to perhaps start this initiative or compelled you to want to build this kind of community on your campus? Yeah, so I've always been an advocate for kind of standing up for people who might not have a voice on campus. I was a volunteer for victims of domestic violence. I hosted a benefit dinner, but it really started when I was a resident assistant and RA at UC San Diego. And a few people were yelling racial slurs in the hallways, and they even drew a swastika on my building. And this event really, you know, shook the community. I wrote a police report. 
we kind of moved on from it, but it felt unsettled because there was people on my floor that came up to me and said they felt unsafe. They didn't know who they were living with. They didn't know who to talk to. So I really wanted to do something more. And that's when I had the idea of hosting something called social justice town halls, because I'm like, okay, something bad happened. I'm going to do something to promote, you know, good in our society, tell them what they should or shouldn't do, because there are rules in our community. I hosted one, no one showed up. I hosted another one, one of my friends showed up for the free food. And then I went to one of my professors, uh, Karen Dobkins, who I mentioned before, and she told me, Zahavia, one really key thing that you need to do is you need to make sure you listen to the other side. Don't shut them out. Don't tell them, you know, what's right or what's wrong. Really view them as another person and try to understand where they're coming from. And she was the one who first introduced the term restorative justice to me. And I kind of revamped the whole thing. I had a whole new perspective on the way that I was approaching this issue. So I rebranded and called it Village Discussions initially because it was in the village. I promoted Boba. Everyone likes Boba. And then there was an ad that Gillette had promoted about toxic masculinity that I saw on YouTube. And I was sitting there scrolling one night and I saw so many hateful comments because a lot of people who identified themselves as, you know, men, they were hurt by the fact that the video was painting them to be like toxic creatures and that they need to be fixed and they need to treat women better. And so they were even throwing razor blades in the toilet from Gillette. And it just, it really it made me super curious to understand why they felt that way. Because personally, when I viewed the video, I thought it was inspirational, but there was, a, it was one of the most disliked videos on YouTube. So I posted that on Facebook and said, hey, have any thoughts on it? Let's discuss. We had 30 people come and we formed a nice big circle. I put the free bulb in the middle and we had a face-to-face -face conversation. And UCSD is typically very liberal. People have these bubbles of thoughts. Everyone kind of, everyone I interacted with thought similarly, but I was pleasantly surprised that people had very different perspectives from each other. One person was saying one thing, another person was saying another thing. And they weren't afraid to say that. And I kind of fell into the role in which I kept asking, thank you for sharing. Why do you feel that way? You know, what thoughts, perspectives, past experiences led you to believe that? And within that hour, I kind of fell into a facilitator role. I was asking questions. I never shared my own viewpoint. And I made sure to interrupt when people were getting a bit too heated, emotional, interrupting other people. And the more I did that, the more I learned some ground rules, how to set the tone, how to maintain the environment and the integrity of the discussion, while also allowing people to have unpopular beliefs, have a voice as well. And it was such an impactful event that kind of sparked me to host discussions about abortion, immigration, gun rights, things that can be very scary and almost taboo to talk about in places of work family, friends. I mean, people avoid those topics at all costs because they know it leads to really heated arguments. But here I was embracing it in a place where I was living. And it really, really became something more than just, you know, an event put on by an RA. It quickly became a movement which it was a student organization and now it's a nonprofit. And especially with the pandemic, it really grew 
a whole life of its own with the virtual platform we had. So it was a very impactful experience because not only did so many people get to be involved in this, I learned so much about how to lead these really incredibly difficult conversations. I was very uncomfortable. I learned leadership, but most importantly, I learned skills that I have been implementing in my personal life, in my place of work, especially last year with the pandemic when we were all living at home, tensions were high, a lot of things were happening in our world, a lot of heavy topics. It was difficult for my extended family to sit down and have a conversation. But because all of these ideas about civil discourse and restorative justice and conflict resolution was so top of mind for me, I fell into that facilitator role once again. And it's just amazing to see that it can continue to impact beyond, you know, a student organization. I mean, that's tremendously powerful. My mind is popping with questions, but I'm going to hand it over to Sakina to take over. I know that your mind's probably popping with questions too. So maybe (laughs) I'll just listen for a bit. Yeah. I want to pick up on one of the things you mentioned, which is that Open Dialogue soon transitioned into being a nonprofit. When you founded Open Dialogue, you came in with the intention of healing something very broken in your local community. Why did you make the conscious decision to not just create a student organization, but rather eventually develop and form an organization that modeled something more of a business? When I started Open Dialogue, I was very conscious of what I wanted it to be and what type of entity I wanted it to be as well. I was part of student government for three years in college, and I saw initiatives start really fast, gain a lot of momentum, and quickly die out once that person graduated or moved on. And that really saddened me because I saw a lot of amazing work that people were doing and it just falling off. And then a few years down the line, someone would have to restart it from scratch. So I really wanted to make an effort of putting a lot of work, surrounding myself with people who are as passionate as me as well, and to really create that movement that could last way beyond my time. So from the very beginning, I wanted it to have a more sustainable model that didn't just rely on me and my efforts. So in doing so, it was always in the back of my mind to model a social enterprise, which is a business that does social good, but also makes money to help it sustain itself. And nonprofits can fit in that model too. So we applied to be a nonprofit, and that's what we officially are today, a 501c3. And the main core of the model is the facilitator training program, because you can have a great group of facilitators, but once they move on, you have nothing. And the key aspect of this is the trainer model. So you have to teach people and those people have to teach the next group of people. So last summer during the pandemic, we spent so much time on Zoom formulating the perfect plan of how to teach people the skills that we had learned because there was a group of five of us that really started this from the ground up and we were learning as we went you know someone came into the room said something very controversial really disrupted the flow of everything and we had to learn how to interact with that we had to even navigate people who were entering chat rooms online and saying disturbing things do we allow that do we not and so we were learning on the job But now we had to put that all in a nice, neat PowerPoint and teach other people. And so that was a big learning experience because you can create something amazing, but it won't last unless you have people that can also carry it on. And that is something we are definitely working on now. I'm still on the advisory board for Open Dialogue, 
because it is such a new organization to make sure it has that strong footing. But it is definitely very key to always be thinking long term and not just in terms of the people that are in the organization right now. Recently, Dr. Donig had Joe Toscano on the podcast and They discussed the idea of doing well and doing good. Toscano, founder of the Better Ethics and Consumer Outcomes Network, specifically underscored the importance of economics because, according to him, ethics alone won't get you anywhere in the United States. As an example, he explained how it took decades for the human rights and civil rights movement to gain momentum. In your point of view, how important is it to build economics into the business model of a nonprofit grassroots organization? I think money is key, right? It's very easy to say that, oh, I want to do good in this world and I don't want to take money from anyone. I'll just do it from my heart. It quickly fails because it is key in terms of sustainability to have that foundation and to always be thinking about it, which is very sad because money does have, you know, negative connotations for some people. So I think it's important to really think deeply about this in terms of who are you asking money from and how are you investing it and how are you reporting on it and what are the future modes of it? So in school, I learned a lot about social enterprises and that always excited me. So Goodwill is an example, you know, people who their bottom line is profit, but it's also doing good in the world. So whatever profits they get is putting back into the business. And I think that is so key for our society. Too often, big corporations, you know, they have a lot of money, they have a lot of influence, but their bottom line does not involve doing good as well, which could really, really change the shape of our planet. And the issue that I've seen with nonprofits that I've been involved in, that I've volunteered with, is asking for donations takes a lot of time and effort. And it sometimes can take away from the actual mission of the organization because every single quarter you're just asking for more and more money. And without it, I mean, you can't fund your staff, you can't fund any of your programs. And it's extremely sad to see when people don't get funded for doing such amazing work and they themselves aren't getting paid much either. So I think it's definitely a vicious cycle and we do need to alter the framework in which we think of good companies versus companies just for profit. I think it needs to be intermingled for us to make the biggest impact while also having sustainable modes for it to have that continued impact. I want to pivot the conversation to sales, which is your current field of occupation in the context of technology. At the tech company you began working at right out of college, you eventually introduced an iteration of Open Dialogue at your place of work. You called it BDR, or Business Development Representative Dialogues. What is BDR Dialogues, and how did the form and shape of these conversations significantly alter from the dialogues at your university? After summer of 2020, I decided to join the tech industry as a sales representative. And when I joined, I did say goodbye to Open Dialogue, but I was still doing it on the side. It really saddened me, though, to say goodbye to something that was basically my baby, something I spent so many hours with. And while I delved deeper into the corporate world, I actually saw a way in which my two passions could mix. This was my first full-time job. I was starting fully remote in the middle of a pandemic, and I thought I'd be making friends, you know, having coworkers that I could talk with, but beyond the Slack messages and a few one-to-one Zooms, 
I was basically sitting alone in my room trying to figure out how to be a salesperson. I pitched the idea to my manager about having something called BDR Dialogues, and that was my role at the time, a business development representative. And I basically just wanted to host weekly 30-minute syncs with other BDRs across the nation just to talk about what's on our minds, you know? Are we all zoomed out, fatigued by, you know, the pandemic? What did we eat for lunch? But also things such as the Black Lives Matter movement, the Asian hate crimes happening right there in the Bay Area where I lived. Really impactful things that were affecting us on a day-to-day basis, but something we didn't really necessarily have the space to talk about during the nine to five. And our places of work take so much time out of our lives. We spend more time working, you know, than with our family sometimes and our friends or eating. So it's very key to have a place where you feel psychologically safe. And that's a term that's very important to me because once you feel psychological safety, then you can be vulnerable and open up. And that's when the true growth and beauty happens. So thankfully, my manager agreed and we started hosting these discussions. And it was extremely beautiful because people that were once so far removed from me, we were in one Zoom screen. I was leading these discussions. I felt comfortable. My old facilitator hat kind of came back on and We were discussing really polarizing topics or sometimes really funny topics, but we all came to a consensus near the end that, you know, like we're here for each other, no matter what we're all going through. And then we checked up on each other and we developed lifelong friendships. I mean, I'm still talking to those people in Chicago and DC that I've never met in person, but all because we had those weekly Zoom sessions. And so it was very inspiring to see a tech company taking a chance on someone to start these sessions in this space. Is BDR Dialogue still running? What particular corporate red tape were you challenged to navigate through? One issue that I didn't think through much when I started hosting these discussions is liability. So I am super young in my career and I am a facilitator, but I did train myself, so I don't have any formal training. So there is that aspect of myself being an employee at the very company that I'm hosting these discussions. If someone says something out of pocket or extremely controversial or something that I'm not trained to handle that could definitely fall back on me and fall back on the company. So it was decided to bring in an external party to lead these discussions. So it was still very important and definitely a value of the company for us to have these discussions. But in a sense, they made it more sustainable by hiring an external party to host them for us. Because at the end of the day, I did have to do my day job as well. So they were trying to find a way to make this sustainable, as I said before, for it to move beyond my time. I want to jump in with a question, if that's okay. I'm, I'm really curious. You've talked a little bit about you know, the value of having these dialogues for the individual psych- psychological well-being of your team members. But I'm curious about the contribution to the team as a whole. What was the value of having these open dialogues on your team? And more broadly, was there a kind of impact or a value that you saw changing at the larger context of your tech company once you started introducing these kinds of facilitated dialogues? I think it was extremely key in breaking down some barriers because I think with everything going on in our world and everyone being holed up in their room by themselves, it's very easy to not ask for help and it's very easy to kind of do things by yourself. But once we open these lines of communication, people felt more comfortable going to each other for help for their day-to-day job, for just going on Zooms and hours on end, you know, bonding over topics that we talked about in our discussions or really just 
having more of that leadership skill too, because sometimes I would hand it off and be like, hey, why don't you facilitate this week on a topic that you're interested in? So they felt more comfortable with their own public speaking in that. And we do have employee resource groups at our company that dive deeper into issues of diversity and things like that. And so I think there is a high value of culture in our company already to highlight these aspects. But the beauty of what we had created was it was employee driven and there wasn't any managers in the room. And I think that also helped with that psychological safety because when it's just your team, when it's just your coworkers, when you know you know, you can just say whatever, not whatever you want to a limit, obviously, but you can be a bit more casual with coworkers. That really helped too, because all we had in our calendars were syncs with, you know, higher ups, management, people we wanted to impress, people we had an image with. So having these smaller groups where we could be more vulnerable really helped with our professional and personal friendships as well. I'm not sure how many people are aware of this, but in between the time you were hosting Open Dialogues at your university and hosting Open Dialogues at your place of work, there was a very crucial middle portion of time. What happened to Open Dialogue in between the time you were about to graduate from college and eventually enter into the workforce arena? Right. So that was right when the pandemic hit and we were starting to get big. We had gained so much momentum, so many partnerships across the university People were writing papers about us. We were getting so excited. And then everything was on Zoom. We thought a lot about it. And everyone asked me, is this it? Are we done? Are we going home now? And it actually opened up a bigger opportunity for us because people have a lot to say. People have a lot to talk about. We were thinking, feeling so much was happening at that time. It was the perfect opportunity to have these places for us to have that face-to-face conversation through a screen safely, but still. Sometimes we just can't talk to the people we live with. Sometimes we have toxic roommates or we live with family members that don't want to talk about these things. Our friends live hundreds of thousand miles away. So it was key for us to create a platform where we could say, hey, we know this is a very confusing time. Let's talk about it. We're here to listen. And especially over that summer as we transitioned and we were applying to be a nonprofit and make it bigger, there was a lot of incoming first years in college that were stuck at home when they would be having the time of their lives, typically, you know, applying for organizations to join in college, meeting new friends, getting super excited. Here they were just sitting in their room and not knowing what to do. We recruited a lot of those through different avenues on Facebook and different applications And we were actually able to get a group of 15 people entering college of all across the nation and even the world from the East Coast, from all across the coast in California, Netherlands, New Zealand. They were incoming first years that were super passionate about the idea of open discourse and listening to other perspectives. So that was a key group of people that had a lot of energy, a lot of ideas, And had that kind of desire to be a part of a community, to, you know, have some leadership skills before they start their journey of college. So we tapped into that energy. We piloted our first facilitator training program with them. And it was amazing because over the course of four weeks, we did three Zooms a week and we actually became really good friends with these people. We would host mock discussions. We would teach people to be, hey, interject that person, you know, see how that feels be confident, be a little bit mean, be a little this, so we can help train the facilitators in the room to how to deal with those scenarios. 
And that was actually a great learning experience for me as well, because I generally view myself as a nice, you know, passive person kind of sitting in the back. That's why facilitation was definitely new to me. But when we did these mock dialogues, the people I was working with, they're like, Zahavia, you have to be meaner because if you're not mean as a participant, you're not teaching the facilitator how to actually deal with those situations. So I had to really lean into that and cut people off, you know, say what I was truly feeling. And that really helped me understand that when I'm a facilitator and people are acting out, I understand their perspective. I understand why they're so passionate, why they feel the need to, you know, say certain words or raise their voice. Because when I do those mock discussions, I get all wrapped up in my character and in my feelings and I understand their perspective. So even that small exercise of a mock discussion taught me so much. So implementing that with people incoming in college was so key for them because they came up to me after and were like, wow, you know, that really helped me in future interactions with friends, roommates, professors even. And it is definitely a lifelong skill. And we kind of just stumbled upon it in our own doing. And so hosting these training sessions all through Zoom with people from navigating different time zones, all in my parents' garage that summer was very, very impactful. And I'm super grateful to have that experience. As a leader who has opened open dialogues in the context of a university, global environment, and larger technology company, in your experience, how does the framework for successfully talking about ethics largely compare in contrast across all three environments? So with the university aspect, I will reiterate, it was a bubble. I feel like there are certain people who think a certain way and they're more vocal than others. And there is that sense of wanting to belong at universities. So people are less likely to speak up if they're in the minority. I mean, think about the age group. It's typically 18 to 22 year olds fending for themselves first time in the world, trying to make new friends. And so if you're in a group of people and there's clearly six, seven strong voices saying, this is right, this is wrong. Anyone who thinks otherwise is a horrible person. If you're a part of that one or two sitting in the back thinking, I actually don't agree with that. It's a lot harder for them to like come out outright and say it. So I think in terms of ethics, it was an echo chamber and people had different experiences with it and different viewpoints at the university level. But it was definitely interesting that when you would go around and be like, what do you think about this? And trying to getting that different side and creating opportunities for that unpopular opinion to arise. That is when the beauty became. And I think in terms of the online environment in between college and the work environment where anyone could have logged in, there was a sense of we don't know who's going to hop in on this Zoom. And it was difficult to moderate that because, again, in college, it's a certain age group, certain perspective, certain background. There is differences, but there is a certain level like, OK, we have that college in common. You know, we all live together, this and that. But with the online environment, it's all different age groups, all different backgrounds, life experiences, socioeconomic classes. And it was definitely difficult to navigate because there would be times people would enter in the Zoom call and say some disturbing things or keep targeting someone. And because sometimes we didn't know any more than their screen name, we didn't know what to do, right? We didn't know if they needed more help in terms of mental health. We didn't know if they were a harm to themselves or society. And so it was definitely difficult to navigate that aspect of it, having 
a stranger on the internet say things. And we had toyed around with the idea a lot of how to make this a scalable platform. And that was something we always ran into, you know, where is that line where we let anyone come in and say whatever we want versus having guidelines and having a limit to be like, if you say X, Y, Z, you're kicked out. So that was something we definitely struggled when we opened it up to everyone. And in terms of the corporate environment, I think people were generally very guarded because it's a company Zoom. You know, you're going to see these people tomorrow at work. They might say something to their manager. So that level of safety and like vulnerability was a lot less than I saw in the other groups because there was a lot to lose in this corporate setting. You know, you worked hard to get this job. You have an image to uphold. And so if someone sees you crying over something that is very deep and near to you, you might not want to show that face so there were different levels of like how people were vulnerable and like how much they felt comfortable sharing can i jump in with a couple of questions i'm curious about a couple of things the first really is you know you talk about translating two important values of open dialogue into the context of a corporate environment the first is translating it from a context of a college campus to the context of a corporate environment. And then the second thing is translating a in-person discussion into an online discussion. And of course, those things happen at the same time. So I'd imagine you really can't pull apart the consequences of that from the way in which they're implicated and mutually constitutive of one another in that particular context. But I wonder if you could talk a little bit, because we have had so many conversations on this podcast about the ways in which we conduct ourselves being mediated by the fact that when we engage with people virtually, we don't oftentimes have to see their response as viscerally as we do when they are face to face with us. And of course, uh, when we're in a corporate environment, there are all sorts of walls, I would imagine, that we put up too, so that we are self-protective, not just, of course, in a psychological and emotional way, but also in a context of our work environment, potentially our legal environment around that. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the former of those two things, which is really how in-person interactions are translated into perhaps some limitations to translating the way in which civil discourses may be an easier principle to follow when we are in person, when we kind of get a sense of somebody else's visceral humanity, vis-a-vis seeing somebody else virtually as translated into a screen presence. This, of course, is behind some of the major problems that we're finding in the context of engaging with other people online and the ways in which engaging with people online oftentimes escalates to uncivil discourse because we are not able to see one another in that kind of embodied humanness. What did you find? What were you seeing? It's a world of a difference of being in person versus online. I mean, there was definitely elements that we tried to translate to the platform, but there was always something else about us sitting in a room face to face, eating the same food, being part of the same community and seeing people's body language. Because that really displays so many different elements to it. If I'm leaning in, if I'm making eye contact with you, then you know that you have my full attention. If I'm kind of leaned back, if my hands are crossed, then you know I'm kind of closed off and I'm not, I'm kind of done with what you have to say. And so when you translate to the Zoom platform, a lot of people are muted, their cameras are off, they're on their phone, there's a lot of notifications on their laptop, people are already fatigued out. So they could be cooking while they're on that Zoom call. I've done it too, you know, there's only so much Zoom I can take. 
And so it does take away from that in person. But I think that there is so much more power in Zoom as well, because it can reach people across different time zones. I was able to reach people from places I had never even heard of, you know, and it gave us the opportunity to meet these people and to have and develop amazing friendships. So I'm not sad that we had to completely move to a virtual platform because it opened up a new way of thinking and talking and we became creative. We utilized Discord to brainstorm, you know, and to have that platform to talk and play games and we would screen share and watch YouTube videos together. And so we took something that was seen maybe as a barrier to having these conversations, but instead as an opportunity to open it up and have even deeper relationships with people we ultimately would have never seen. I'm not going to know, you know, someone in the Netherlands, but now I do because of this platform. So I think there is pros and cons to both. And I think a mixture is ultimately the best, which is what Open Dialogue has transitioned to now. With safety regulations, we're able to have in-person discussions for people who want it, but also still continue that virtual platform to allow all the new friends that we've made to continue to participate in these discussions. So I want to ask a question that that maybe challenges a little bit of that, because I've had a running debate on this podcast about the nature of free speech with different experts who have come on this podcast or speaking their mind or having this kind of open dialogue. I've had scholars and critics and tech leaders all talk about this principle of free speech, particularly in the context of online environments where we don't have to engage with one another's humanness the same way. And we have developed this kind of conversation vis-a-vis some of the other movements that have happened precisely on college campuses. Precisely, I would imagine, at the same time that you started open dialogue. Some folks who have been on this podcast have taken a, a kind of principled stance on academic free speech, but also free speech broadly, to say that free speech is the democratic consciousness of people who exist on a certain platform or belong to a certain community, and that platforms and communities ought to represent the democratic consciousness of those who belong to it unfettered. Others, including at times, I think, myself too, to show my cards, tend to think that while free speech is an important value and principle and open dialogue is, even at its most extreme and tense moments, a really important principle, isn't, I want to say, sovereign as, as a principle. It's a principle that, and it's a value that exists, I think, in tension with other values. I would imagine, again, around the same year that you started Open Dialogue, there was a vociferous debate on UC Berkeley's campus about the nature of free speech in at UC Berkeley's community. And UC Berkeley's dean of the law school, who has written, I think, quite extensively on the concept of free speech, says, it's not that I don't understand or care very deeply about the fact that free speech has impacts and that it can and it can hurt people, but we are obligated to defend it even if we disagree with what people say. On the other hand, another professor at UC Berkeley School of Law, uh, John A. Powell, says, I think this is a contrasting point of view, what if we weighed the value of free speech against the value of, for example, equality or not causing harm to vulnerable populations? What if we weighed those two values as equal uh, and conflicting values rather than this kind of false dichotomy where free speech is recognized, but the harm caused by it is not. And this is something that I think about like quite a bit, especially when we're talking about the protection of 
vulnerable minorities who experience the consequence of us uplifting the value of open dialogue and free speech, oftentimes in ways that sacrifice the value of equality and the value of not causing harm. So I wonder if you could add your voice from the perspective of open dialogue to this broader conversation that we've had here, thinking about as well the the context that we are in right now where people are mostly engaging with people with whom they disagree virtually so that they can't have the kind of unfettered person-to-person interaction that I think foregrounds a sense of our own humanity and our humility with regard to other people's vulnerability. I think you bring up a lot of great points and I definitely don't have a super strong view or like a yes or no answer because if we all did, then this wouldn't be such a complicated question, you know, and a big debate because there isn't a clear line of where when something, you know, is completely wrong or right, there's always that middle ground in that gray area. I do think that the more that people feel censored or they're not supposed to talk about certain things, they kind of get angry and start having conversations separately with people who think the same way. And I think especially with media and technology, the echo chambers are huge. If you look at someone's Facebook profile, they're going to have a lot of people on their newsfeed that also agree with them and agree with their viewpoints. And these platforms definitely feed into that. And so it is very scary to see that like, the people in my friend group, they all think the same. But like, if someone I'm not interacting with on the bus, if I look over and see, you know, their platform, they're all having that echo chamber. So I think that it's key to let others speak, but to an extent, because what I've experienced in the pandemic, too, is this mental exhaustion of constantly having to tell your viewpoint, standing up for yourself, standing up for others, to what point, right? To what point are you supposed to listen to all the different sides, all the different perspectives, you know, not block anyone because there is a sense of your own mental energy to protect as well, which is something I've definitely learned over the years. I can't just sit here and say that I'm open to every single conversation, every single perspective, every viewpoint, because that would be exhausting because hearing some things that personally affect me or affect people in my community, hearing someone that's not open to a conversation, constantly saying those things will take a toll on my own health. And so I think it's very key to have your own personal limits of how much you do want to take in. During some of these movements that have been happening, some of my friends would be like, oh, this person doesn't agree with me. I'm going to block them. I want nothing to do with them. I don't want to hear about them. I don't want them to see anything of my life. And my first reaction was, you can't block people because then they'll never hear what your perspective is. You'll never hear about them. And then those echo chambers where I think this way, you think this way, and it keeps continuing and you both get very extreme in your views. But the more that I did that and the more open I was being, I could see some of my friends also just getting exhausted, constantly having to keep advocating for themselves. Like I said, that emotional exhaustion. So I honestly changed my viewpoint on that. Now I think that if someone is toxic, if someone's not willing to have a constructive conversation, it's okay to not engage in that discourse with them. So even myself, I feel like I'm always changing my viewpoints and perspectives and trying to stay open to what I'm learning, thinking, feeling, what's okay today might not be okay tomorrow. So I definitely think it's a mixture. I do not think it's completely black and white that we need all the speech in the world, or, you know, we need to censor X, Y, Z, A, B, C, D, you know, I think it's way more nuanced than that. And I think 
it really comes down to also personal choice of like how much you want to allow that to enter into your life. In the wake of January 6th, several online platforms deliberated and ultimately decided that there was a perspective or a viewpoint that it was going to deny from the open dialogue happening on their platforms. Both Twitter and Facebook decided to shut down the account of former President Donald Trump. Of course, some people would make the point that this is of public interest. And of course, some people would make the point that as a space of democratic consciousness of the community, even this speech ought to be in some way allowed to participate in that civic discourse. Others felt that it would be harmful to continue to allow that voice on the platform. Do you have a position on it? Was this something that you spent any time thinking about, particularly in the context of open dialogue? I think when it turns into violence, I think there needs to be a definitely a critical view on what's happening and who's consuming what media and what information. Because when people are affected, when their lives are being affected, you know, when people act on certain things that they see in the news or pe- leaders are saying, I think that it is extremely key to take certain measures to make sure that it I think in terms of violence, I think it is definitely okay to step in sometimes and remove that person or some of that speech just for a moment, because I think sometimes these platforms need a chance to breathe too, because they've been taking so much space and time as well. And so it is key to make sure that it is more level playing field. I have two more questions and then I'm going to let Sakina take it to our close. We're almost at the end of our time. Um, But I wanted to ask you to maybe take this back to the college campus. In college, we learn about thinking through ideas and lessons. And then once we enter the workforce, it's less of that kind of thought experiment environment. And it's more about the way in which we can apply those lessons and concepts and ideas. From your own recent transition from the college campus to the workforce, how have you seen the link between thinking on the one hand and applying ethical principles on the other? I think it's really easy to sit there and take notes in college and say, yes, I'm going to be doing the right thing when I enter the workforce. But when you're actually in there, there's so many different aspects that play into it that affect your decisions and how you move forward. Because there's, you know, the promise of promotion on your head. There's dealing with managers and different coworkers and different expectations and, you know, your own wants and desires. So it is definitely key to kind of remember the things that you've learned and kind of check in with your own values and say, is this right? You know, am I cheating the company? Am I cheating myself? What should I be doing moving forward? And definitely in terms of having that open discussion in my corporate workplace, I think that was amazing because I could talk about issues that really affected me and that I wanted to speak about with my coworkers. And also to advocate for each other, right? If someone was not getting the same opportunities as someone else on my team, not being afraid to use our voice and saying, hey, I think XYZ should have this thing. And I think the biggest thing that I've learned is to just not be afraid to bring up things that are affecting you because your biggest advocate will be yourself. And if you don't speak up, no one else will. So when you see something wrong, or you see something that you'd want to change, go to management, go to upper management, make your voice heard. And if that company doesn't support you, then it might be time to pivot because it is so key that your company values you as an individual and sees you as a person and human first, and then as the output second, because that is extremely key. As I said, you spend most of your life working. So 
you need to have a good relationship with the place of work. I, I want to ask just one or maybe one or two more questions before I give back to Sakina. The first is I was really touched by your story about Professor uh, Karen Dobkins at UC San Diego. And you can really kind of trace a comet from where she had a conversation with you all the way until this massive movement that you have built in light of those comments. As the faculty advisor now to Open Dialogue at Cal Poly, what can professors on campus be doing to facilitate open dialogue for their students? What can we be doing to create a better campus environment, one that facilitates civic discourse? I think that's a great question. And something that my professor would always do is she would teach psychology courses. So one of them was about sensory neuroscience or so something super technical, nothing to do with feelings or thoughts or anything like that. But in the beginning of her class, she would always host these mindful moments where we would all take a breath, you know, meditate a little bit, or she would say something and that would, we would really ponder about. So if every professor could sometimes implement something, you know, like ask a question to their students, really engage them in that conversation and view them as more than just a student with tests, exams, GPAs, I think that would make a world of a difference. And it would really humanize the professor as well. Because there is a level of student professor, you know, during office hours, you're there to ask a question, make a good impression. But if during class or during the office hours, the professor shows a more vulnerable side and maybe shares a bit more about their life or asks the students about their life as well. I think that's the first step in starting these open discussions by addressing things that are happening in the news, saying, I know it's extremely tough right now. You know, this community is going through this. Like, how are you all feeling? Does anyone want to talk about it? Please come to my office hours. You know, it doesn't strictly have to be about class. It could be about how you're doing as a person, because then students might feel more comfortable coming up and saying when things are going bad or they need extra help and things like that. So I think that could be one way to start it out. And also promoting the fact that open dialogue could help with conflict resolution and increase, you know, their confidence in their classroom as well for speaking up and saying their viewpoints. I mean, I remember in growing up in classes, sometimes in poli-sci classes or things like that, maybe I wouldn't speak up because I didn't have a fully formulated view or they had some strong views in the class. But if I had those open dialogue skills earlier, then maybe I would have felt more comfortable saying what I felt, looking people into the eye. So promoting that, I think, would be key as well. And I want to squeeze in one last question, which is that open dialogue now is opening up at Cal Poly, hopefully with the aim and the vision of opening up dialogue at the context of our university. Of course, our university context is one in which we have a large number of students who are either studying technical fields or intending to go into the tech industry. Do you have any thought about what the value of joining a movement like open dialogue might be for that kind of student at Cal Polly, what would open dialogue's value be for a technological environment or for the next generation of technologists who are envisioning a career in the tech industry? I think it's so key, the tech industry, to know how to communicate. I think you can have a great product, you can work hours and hours with your team, but ultimately, if the world doesn't know what you're selling or you can't talk to your coworkers or you can't advocate for yourself with your managers, 
none of that work will really materialize. So with the tech industry and even outside of it, I think knowing how to communicate is such a basic human function that can really propel yourself in your personal life and in your career. I mean, currently I'm in the tech field and I sell identity and access management solutions, which I never would have thought of in college based on what I was doing there. But implementing what I learned in the tech industry has been so key because I'm in sales. And so my entire job is to communicate value and to have that human element on the phones, on LinkedIn, on emails, and whatever role you're in in the tech industry as well, you ultimately do have to communicate with one another. And people are going to have different perspectives on that technology itself too, whether you're on the production side of it, when you are talking in such complex terms, it can definitely get frustrating sometimes if someone's not listening to what you're saying, especially if you're a person of color or you're a woman. It can feel intimidating in these environments that are dominated by other groups to speak up and say, I actually think it should be X, Y, Z. So having these tools that open dialogue can give you can really help you elevate yourself, your personal brand, to advocate for your own thoughts, feelings, ideas, and really accelerate that and really positively impact the world ultimately. What advice would you give to new emerging student leaders hoping to make an impact in their local environment in the context of ethics and technology? The biggest advice I would give to anyone starting out is to just jump in and do it. That's the biggest thing that I've learned and that has given me the most success by not thinking, planning, you know, going through every single outcome, getting advice from thousands of people before I actually did it. I just went in and hosted a discussion and no one came. And yes, it was a failure. Yes, I was super embarrassed. But because that experience happened, I was able to reach out and pivot and get even more experience. And it led me to something amazing. And that's something I've done time and time again, something I learned from my mother who started her own bakery as well. You can't just keep planning everything, right? If you want to do something in terms of ethics, technology, you want to have an impact, just go out and do it. Because guess what? You will stumble and fall, but that's when the great things happen. And that's when you meet the most amazing people. You learn so much about yourself and the world and the environment. And that's where you can have the biggest impact. Well, thank you so much, Zahavia. Thank you very much, Sakina. Thank you so much. It was great talking to you. And thanks for listening. We're off next week for the Thanksgiving break. We'll return the first week of December for our final episode of the Technical Human season. 